Hi, this is Kathleen Mercury with Games and Schools and Libraries, and I'm here today with my good friend Seth Yeager. Hello, Seth. Hi. So I want to tell everybody a funny little story about Seth and I. So we met back in October at the Gifted Association of Missouri Conference in Springfield, Missouri, and I did my presentation on teaching game design and getting everybody all excited about it, of course. And I and I said, you know, I have this podcast, and is if anybody out there is interested in doing game design, I would love to have somebody on the show to do like sort of like a Q and A. What do I need to know? How can we do this? Talk it out, sort of thing. And Seth was. Um, in my audience, and he was like, yeah, I'm in, and so it was super exciting, um, and then I had a chance to go to his session, which was all about teaching resilience and five habits of mind and really developing very specific critical thinking skills, and I'm really good at having kids do things, and I'm not the best at having them process things in terms of talking them out, thinking them through, and he really excelled at that, and so I got even more excited about the conversation that we were going to have because of how much our work dovetailed each other, but also in very different ways. And so we had, we recorded an episode and it was great. And we had, you know, fatal technical problems. And so, well, you know, this is teachers, we just rebound. And so a few months later, or a month or so later, we tried again. And it was actually really interesting, part two, because Seth had tried to do some game design work with his students. And it had some interesting kind of hiccups in the process. You know, there's doing something sort of in theory and then the reality of it, you know, sort of came in and we had a great conversation about that. And then we um, both had technical problems. And so this is actually part three of a non-existent three-part episode with uh, my good friend Seth Yeager. And we're going to talk about um, teaching game design, developing resilience in students. And we're just going to take it away from there. So, um, Seth, why don't you tell us a little bit about, from your perspective, um, game design, the process, and give us a little take on what happened with you in your classes. Yeah, so I teach uh, eighth grade through 12th grade independent studies, which is an elective course for gifted kids in addition to some IB courses. But uh, I really wanted to try the game design stuff within my independent studies classes um, because we had a curricular topic that we got from Future Problem Solvers, and it was uh, toxic materials. And so we have this larger goal. I gave them three options, and one of them was a game. And I was using. Do me a favor, real quick. Explain toxic materials. Just to give a little bit of background, just so people know thematically what you're talking about. Yeah. So, uh, toxic materials in general, um, the kinds of things that enter our environment, our soil, our water, and that are harmful to nature and humans in general. Okay. And this can be anything from, you know, chemicals um, all the way to e-waste. Um, some kids, you know, chose to focus on um, just the byproducts of living in a technological society, and when you, you know, um, in an age of obsolescence and all this. So we have uh, we had uh, kids asking different questions about, um, you know, how these toxic materials are created, for what purposes, what are the positives, and then what happens when they're no longer useful, or the byproducts associated with that. And so there was a lot, um, you know, there's a lot of meat there to try to create um, create games. So yeah, I introduced it, and some people got really excited about it. Others chose to do different projects, and they had maybe had a game design um, kind of component in their class last year, not with me, but with a different teacher, and so they didn't really like that 
um, format. Others were totally ready to go. And so um, I ended up at this. So it took about two months, maybe two and a half months. And at the end, I would say we had five different groups create or attempt to create games. And four of them actually went through with playable games to varying degrees of right. success. And um, I guess in my world, I'm, I'm really kind of focused on this idea of um, a mastery orientation versus a performance orientation. Mm -hmm. And um, it kind of hinted at what you were talking about before with... Um, I would say I'm probably more of performance than mastery. It's more important for me that my students gain experiences that can lead to other areas of interest or that can, you know, build, you know, the confidence to try big, crazy projects. You know, I don't need to know everything about this. I just, I'm, I'm just going to try to do it. <laughs> right. And so I tend to, um, I'm a little more biased to the other side where it is, um, what is the process that got you there? I don't really care if there was a final product, just as long as you can take the skills that about, um, working through hardship and, um, you know, being able to analyze all the points on which you were making decisions and then apply that to something else later on. So you can't complete it. So, uh, I think we're both coming at it from the same direction. Yeah. Um, which right. I think is really interesting about how we both work and in terms of what we focus on with our kids, because I want the exact same thing for my students. We just look at, you know, um, it's not quite as binary as process versus product, but yeah, you definitely have right. something that, and you know, that you want the kids to focus on that you want them to show their success. Yeah. I guess the most cartoon version of that is, um, do you have something to tweet out eventually, you know? And so, um, where I had a couple kids get in on my picture of like completed games, you know, on, on Friday, I was like, Hey, everybody who created a game, grab your game and get together. And then there were kids who just kind of hopped in the photo who didn't really do anything mm -hmm. and it showed me it's just like and and so i started noticing it myself like they're kind of in there um and i'm gonna let it happen because i need to like there's this pressure for teachers now to show what we're doing in the classrooms mm -hmm. and stuff like that and so i'm, I'm really hesitant with the with the self-promotion and it's not about the in thing like i still feel that is um it's extrinsic, but that's, again. As, as the um, developer of the website, <laughs> KathleenMercury.com, I don't know what you're talking about at all. <laughs> well, I mean, I think in some ways, I, I, I get that. I think also, though, that if you're doing something cool, people need to know so that other people can, can get totally those agree. ideas. And I think you do a lot of really cool stuff that you, I mean, you're working on, you're sharing at conferences, you know, you're getting your PhD in this, or your, I'm sorry, your EDD in this, so... um I think that's part of it. And I think especially for teachers, you know, we're sort of the model is you're in your classroom and you stay in the classroom and very few or it's almost novel or you or they're only the tech teachers who really are working to create, you know, professional learning networks outside of the classroom. And But I think this is what we need to be doing in order to be relevant and to survive into this next shift of human development. But go on back to game design. No, I absolutely I uh, absolutely agree with you. And so it's caused this tension because are we breeding kind of the impulses that are naturally there for teenagers anyway to just kind of show stuff and it's is it superficial or is it real stuff is this part of making the audience um authentic you know that it's it's real world and so i've been i've been man, well, going back and forth on this too, developmentally and, uh, in some ways it is real to them even though to you and i from an an adult perspective, we might see it totally differently, but this is where they're at. I mean, yeah. think back to what you remember from this age when you were in high school. I mean, the amount of depth and 
knowledge that we're expected to have kids come out of our classes with, or even in core classes or whomever, versus what do you actually remember from middle school? And and you probably turned out okay. Now, granted, there's plenty of examples of people who did not turn out okay, and maybe some education might, <laughs> a little bit more retention would probably help them. But I think in some ways, you know, yeah. if it's meaningful to them, then it has an impact and it's something that they can take and move forward with. Yeah. I agree. And so I'm looking here at, um, so I created a single point rubric that's kind of a generalized rubric for my classes and there's, there's no numbers on it. It is just about descriptive feedback and, uh, both, both on their end, self-reflection and then on my end, there's targeted feedback that I provide on this. And so some of the things that I, you know, I ask about are, um, in what ways did you demonstrate independent learning or metacognition, reflection on the process, interactions? And those are all like, um, characteristics of continuous learning that we want to promote in general. And then the actual learning objectives. So was, did you have a uh, deep, content? Um, was it complex? We're using academic vocabulary, the presentation, you know, um, did it look nice? And also what skills did you like develop? And so I'm sitting here reading one of my students who created a game that was uh, essentially a sorry monopoly type hybrid knockoff. And um, I'm reading her evidence of successes. That, that's the column I have for her descriptive feedback. And so she was like, well, you know, I was able to go my own way with the game project and bring out my creative side to make the project fun. It looked nice. I was open to constructive criticisms from my classmates um, and, and I was open to improving my game that way. And it was nice to get a second opinion uh, from someone else. Um, so, you know, their importance were important uh, because that was who my, my game was directed towards were, were my classmates. And so I see now if we're talking about developmentally, she had a different experience than I, than I would have, uh, you know, just automatically said, well, it's not really that functional, blah, 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 blah. But, you know, if she's processing it as I learned something, I took uh, constructive criticism and it wasn't perfect, but it was nice. You know, um, I don't know. So I'm happy. Well, one of the big things I do when I in my class with my students is I say, "What have you, what have you learned from this that you'll carry over to other things? What did you learn as part of this process?" And this is where it gets to be incredibly individual, and it's the same kind of thing. I mean, I remember last semester in particular, I had one student who would the type of student who needed confirmation every step right. of the way: "Is this okay? Is this okay? Is this okay?" And what I really worked with him was to make decisions, see what happened, and, and knowing that he could handle the results. And by the end, when we were having this conversation, I mean, maybe on one hand, he's telling me what he thinks I, I want to hear. But on the mm -hmm. other hand, he said, I know that I can trust myself to make decisions about what I want to do for a project. And when you're talking about especially, you know, lifetime learning and continuous learning and, you know, just building in those sort of like fundamental blocks of confidence for kids to go on and develop other projects. I mean, some of these kids will never develop a game ever again, but I want them to know that you can take on something really ambitious, absolutely bonkers, totally out of your comfort zone, and you can be way more successful with it than what you probably give yourself credit for. Yeah. Uh, I think about this. If we only allow choices to be made, you know, after school, like we should, when, when should you allow kids to make choices about their, you know, academic pursuits? Well, the answer is yesterday. <laughs> um, and if we don't give them chances to practice in safe environments, of course, what kind of choices do we expect them to make 
when they're 18. Right. right? Well, I had um, one of the uh, one of my students' parents at parent teacher conferences back in October. We, I was talking about the process and what we were doing for game design. And he teaches at Washington University here in St. Louis, where I live. And he said, well, I teach digital game design. He said, and what you're doing with your students is the exact same thing that I'm doing with my students. And I said, Uh, I know. That's what I keep telling them, too. And he said, how amazing is it that they're getting the chance to experience this in seventh grade when I've got, you know, 18, 19, 20-year-olds who've never done this and... Think about kids who are at a school as highly selective as Washington University, you know, fear of failure. These are kids who are used to being achievers, finding the right answer. And in game design, there's no right answer. You know, projects are never perfect. They're never finished. You just decide that they're done at some point because you have to. You know, you can never get it, you know, to be so perfect unless it's some sort of abstract, you know. And so the the real, you know, complex projects are messy. And this actually ties really well, I think, into... The work you're doing with resilience, um, but as I said, this is some, you've got a theory of um, resilience that you're developing as part of your graduate studies. Um, we talked about this as it relates to your students um, in, in Mythical Part Two. Um, so let's talk a little talk a little bit about um, your work in resilience and how what that looked like for your students along the way. Yeah, uh, I've been trying to set up a bunch of different heuristics around critical thinking. What I just de- what I decided is that my my focus in my classes is just critical thinking um, and how explicit do we make this? And I realized I was just kind of touching on stuff and I, and it wasn't like, Hey guys, this is what critical thinking is. And I know it sounds cheesy, but like when you do that, they start parroting it back and it becomes an embedded part of, um, you know, I think you have to make it explicit. And if you're just kind of, it's just kind of embedded within the functions of the class. That's nice. It's better than nothing. But I think we actually have to start making these heuristics and, and, uh, kind of frameworks for them. And so one of the ones, uh, that was useful for me was the future problem solvers. And from then I just kind of started adapting it and I ended up coming with, up with this idea I have called, um, the model of intellectual resilience, not really a model, I'd say a heuristic of intellectual resilience. And what I call it is uh, becoming exceptionally average. So you want to be as balanced as possible on a couple of continuum that um, are going to be the best for progressing through difficulty on an intellectual scale. Um, you know, a lot of the work that's being done by Duckworth um, and others right now, uh, like for, for her study with grit, it was all about um, a general sense of resilience and perseverance um, with like West Point graduates. Mine is more of, I'm trying to focus on like intellectual, when you suffer some kind of intellectual um, injury, I, I don't know what else okay. to say, maybe setback or like, you know, anything from like, you are quite clearly proven wrong in conversation right. with somebody. Uh, how do you Failure bounce back? with a capital that? F. Yeah, exactly. What do, you, what do you do with that? And a lot of the research is coming out right now about cognitive biases. It shows that um, when you, sh- when you, are shown to be incorrect, we have a tendency to double down on it. It's called the backfire effect, which makes it so difficult to try to persuade anybody on anything. And of course, we're seeing this on social media and it's all amplified and magnified now. Yeah, and so uh, I had this idea called Exceptionally Average. And it's touching on, um, you know, a lot of different things that are way out of my um, expertise, like religion and philosophy and science. But I think that it's all demonstrated that um, you know, in religion, moderation is a value in, in, in Eastern and Western traditions. In philosophy, uh, we have the golden mean. Um, 
you know, uh, in Buddhism and, and Taoism, you have like yin and yang and, and um, the Eightfold Path. And so like there's uh, in science, you have homeostasis. So maintaining some kind of balance is an optimal state. And uh, and so I started developing this and I figured, well, if we're talking about if we're talking about um, just the cognitive aspects, what what are the kinds of things that can start helping my students uh, orient their minds in a way that is you know beneficial to start um, you know getting through um, setbacks? And so I came up with the the different dimensions. So you have this orientation to cognition, which explains trusting and accepting of new information that comes in. You have an orientation to deliberation, which um, is kind of like the degree to which you re- react versus reflect in a moment. Um, you know, under new stimuli, and then your orientation to determination, the degree to which you relinquish versus persevere in the face of adversity. And so I've, opt- I've uh, identified a couple different um, positive attributes and then their negative attributes. And so like on the orientation to cognition, uh, where it's trusting and accepting, so the optimal zone is somewhere it's like a combination between open-mindedness and skepticism. And uh, you have a nice balance on that because if that gets out of whack, well, if you're too skeptical and you're not enough open-minded, you end up uh, getting on to – you end up traveling onto the cynical side of, of that continuum. And then you've closed yourself off from new experiences, new information, new relationships, anything like that. But on the other hand, if you're too open-minded and you're not skeptical enough and you're not questioning, of course, there's going to be – um, somebody there to take advantage of you financially or emotionally or, you know, whatever, um, because of your gullibility now. And so, um, I guess the next one, if I'm not rambling too much here, then, um, so next one's like your orientation to deliberation. It's the degree to which you react versus reflect. And so the optimal position there is between contemplation and intuition. Um, when those are out of whack and there's too much intuition and not enough thinking about it, you end up becoming reckless. So recklessness is the, is the detrimental aspect of that. And on the other hand, if there's um, too much contemplation and not enough intuition and going with your gut, well, you, you're exhibiting paralysis, you know, paralysis uh, by analysis, and you end up just not making a decision at all. And finally, uh, your orientation to determination, the degree to which you relinquish versus persevere. And so the optimal zone there would be like, uh, amenability and persistence. So um, the bias, and I heard this from you during your presentation, the bias towards action is preferable, um, but also having a um, being amenable to the idea that you can get you're persuaded persuadable okay. to get off this track when it's no longer in your in your interest, um, because you know you can keep banging your head against a wall forever. Um, until you're obstinate. But on the other hand, if you, your default position is just to like to give up at the slightest, um, setback, then, you know, resignation is your, is your, uh, is, is the detrimental side of that. And so it all comes together. And so, you know, if you can demonstrate the positive aspects of this and, and, uh, mitigate the negative aspects, um, you know, I call this like the zone of intellectual resilience. Well, I think, so, you know, yeah. from all these different, um, dichotomies or continuums at least, Um, you know, thinking about my students and what I see in the classroom, I mean, a lot of this makes a lot of sense to me in terms of really being able to frame their behavior, you know, according to certain, um, what they're choosing to do, where you can see 
um, their behavior. It helps frame what they're doing so that you, you it gives you a framework to kind of nudge them back, um, to try to get them to at least be more, you know, metacognitive about what they're doing, how they're doing it, why are they doing what they're doing. Um, and like I said, I mean, I'm, this is not a strong point with me as, as far as having kids to really, um, focus on this or to really process things this way. I mean, at best, I'll talk about work avoidance behaviors. Why are you doing that instead of what you should be doing? Right. And that's like my fumbling sort of attempts to get kids to be really critical. So I like what you're doing, um, makes it really practical and understandable. And then that helps you then to work with students. So. So you have been working on this, so your students are the most resilient students that we've ever had in the history of education. So tell us how they just blew it out of the park for you. Yeah, uh, so, <laughs> um, you know, I can, man, really, this is, I could lie so much right now. Uh, however, um, we're working on it, you know. Right. It's a, it's a model, and uh, what it at least does, it gives them words and vocabulary and conceptual understanding on which we can, you know, frame these, frame these ideas. Does it always work in application? Well, I had some students who were super passionate about creating this game on uh, e-waste and, and it was pretty complex. It was based on, we had, uh, we'd been playing a bunch of games on your recommendation and uh, trying to build our vocabulary on, um, you know, game mechanics and stuff like that. And I'd really gotten into seven wonders and I brought it in and we all kind of analyzed what was happening here and how it was balanced out and everything. And so they had this idea to create a card trading um, game based on Seven Wonders, kind of, um, except they're going to be getting rid of uh, e-waste and they're going to be dumping it on different countries and and uh, going back and forth. And just the concept sounded really cool, and they had and they were super excited about it. And then we played it for the first time, and it just didn't work. And it was quite clear within maybe three minutes of playing that there were fundamental flaws. And so, uh, you know, we spoke, you offered to come in and Skype in and provide some consultation on the, on the game. And they really took it to heart and were, got excited again after that. Then scheduling stuff happened. I don't think it's, it's going to be completely abandoned. Um, but this was a great example of like, in the face of setback, what do you do? And uh, one of them was like, hey, I'm willing to go on if you are. And the other guy's like, Hey, yeah. yeah. Well, and it was really fun to Skype in because, um, yeah, because after we talked, I said, you know, listen, you know, let me do this and, and I'll talk with the kids and give them some advice, at least from, from the game design setback, you know, standpoint. But also, when you're teaching, doing game design, so much of what I do is not going into the particulars on certain mechanics so much or making sure kids games are mathematically balanced it's so much about coaching them through this process of working with uncertainty of not having a, a concrete right answer at the end there's no specific objective they can really obtain you know projects are never finished even if they kept working on them six months like any game you know it's really hard for you to say this is finished this is perfect you know and so um so I spent, you know, a good amount of time with them talking about, um, you know, their game and giving them ideas and all that. You know, it took them a little while to warm up, but then, of course, from their perspective, it was my giant face on their on the smart board in the room. But the one thing is, is I remember, especially at the end, where, you know, I said to them, I said, you know, you guys are gifted. You're in this class because you're gifted. And I want you to know you're still gifted. And having this not work is not a reflection of you and your giftedness, 
but this struggle shows that you're learning, that if you only did the same thing over and over again that you're good at, you would never really grow. You would never really learn and get better at anything. And it was funny because one kid was yeah. just sitting there kind of nodding his head. And I think that's one thing too, especially when we do something like this with kids, you know, there is that part of them that we have to remember. Like we can, I can be so noble about what I want to do in terms of teaching game design and all these things is, but if I'm intentionally setting some kids up for failure and that they're going to walk out of here with a game that they probably can't say that, you know, is great, you know, to spend all this time mm -hmm. on something where they're like, yeah, I made it better, but it's still kind of boring to me. I'm like, do you know how hard that is? Like, I'm so proud of you. I'm so proud of you. Mm -hmm. I'm so proud of you. And, but it's hard. It's really, really hard. And even if you don't teach gifted kids, you know, this is hard on any kid and it can really kind of rattle them a little bit, but especially for gifted kids, you know, sometimes, I mean, it's just speaking for myself, you know, I, you know, I was an odd duck. And so at least I was proud of the fact that I was, that I was gifted and I could do these things. And having that kind of, you know, setback for them is really, really tough because it's the first time many of them really ever experience, you know, academic struggles or setbacks or even failures, you know, and I, that one of the most important changes that I've made over time has really been about getting kids to see it as a process, having like some sort of realistic expectations. It means sometimes that kids don't swing for the fences as much as they may be used to because they are more focused on getting it workable. Um, I mean, I, I've had kids come up with some projects in the past that were absolutely crazy and awesome and so cool sounding, and they just couldn't make it work because they were so ambitious. Um, whereas I've got kids who stick with safer yeah. projects that they do make a lot of good progress on. And it's not perhaps the most, you know, exciting or super innovating project, but it's a good solid game. But that's one thing I think we have to remember when we're working on this with kids is we have to remember like just how fragile they are emotionally sometimes at this point. And Yep. Thinking about resilience and developing that isn't just academic. It's that emotional side too, that social emotional side. That's right. That's right. Yeah. So the question I, I would think about is uh, how much of is that is natural versus environmental, you know, nature versus nurture kind of uh, the degree to which you're comfortable with ambiguity um, or openness to experience. And, and we're finding right. out, you know, some of this is just hardwired in and some of it is really fostered by the environment. And some of it is social pressure of right. being the kid who's supposed to know all the answers, mm -hmm. the kid who's been told they have the IQ. Right. And so how much are we really fostering? How much are we allowing for that? Um, you know, it's, these are definitely considerations that we have uh, in general and then specifically with our, you know, our, our population. Yeah. So, well, I had one uh, very surprising success this week. Um, one of the girls that I've had in class, um, is a very, very much a completionist, a perfectionist, wanting mm -hmm. to get it right. Um, her game boards, cause I emphasize fast and cheap, ugly prototypes. She would come in with very, very pretty prototypes. She'd say, I spent all this time on it. And honestly, for me, that's a big red flag because if it's so precious, they don't want to get rid of it. Um, <laughs> And, and, and so we were talking about next semester, they're not going to have me. They're going to have our other gifted teacher who's going to do a different unit with them for the semester. And she said, this was last week. She's, and she said, so we don't get to have you next semester. I said, no, but you know, Miss Matthews is amazing and you know, it's going to be great. And, uh, this week, 
Um, it was just like a last, you know, turn in our projects, get stuff done, kind of just clean up odds and ends and things. And she came up to me and she said, well, I have this other idea. And I said, okay. Um, okay. Cause when I talked, when we were talking about that, she'll have, you know, that she'll have this other teacher. I said, if you want to do game design again, you could do this again. Cause I've had kids repeat the class. Cause trust me, it never gets easier repeating it. <laughs> you know, I mean, they actually tend to make much better games the second time around, but it's still a hard process. So that's okay. Why it's okay to repeat it. Sure. Um, and, uh, and so when I said that, she's like, Oh God, no, you know, and I was like, okay, <laughs> like, again, you know, well, this week she came up to me and she said, why this idea? It's for another game. I was like, really? Like, okay, tell me about it. And she's like, well, if it was different countries and she started explaining this and explaining this. And so in this last week when projects are done and kids could play other games, play the games that they designed and she's over there writing and I'm like, what are you doing? She's like, well, I'm brainstorming ideas for my game. And then she was talking with me. She's like, is it okay next semester if I come find you to talk with you and work with you on this game idea? And I was like, absolutely the door is open this is fantastic so i mean the thing is is this is like because i've had students like this girl in particular before who you know they come in and i have kids like this now they come in as a perfectionist this is a big challenge for them they don't necessarily enjoy all the intellectual freedom and the delight of having uncertain (laughs) endings (laughs) but she totally made a turn for it, you know, and I was so excited. I mean, still am about this because one, I love seeing women in in games and game design, but also the fact that this student sees herself as successful in a process that she struggled with all along the way, that she made a breakthrough that I so wish so many other kids could sometimes. And maybe, you know, maybe more making it than I think she's just more verbal about it, you know, maybe, maybe not sometimes. I mean, I'm the type of person who, you know, 99 good things and the one bad thing and that's the one you can focus on a little bit mm-hmm. sure <laughs> i mean that's you know sure. um but it was amazing honestly and i think in a lot of ways i'm as proud of that as i am of anything else as far as what's happened in the class because it's not so much that she wants to keep designing games is that she's willing to embrace uncertainty and she's willing to play around with ideas to see if she can get them to work. There's no pressure now on her for her grade. I mean, grades are such a small part of what we do in the class anyway, but you know, it's a part of her that's made a shift and I can't be more excited about it. That's awesome. Yeah. Congrats. Yeah. Well, you know, congrats to her, especially, you know, so, but, but that's the thing though, is I think, especially when you deal with kids and you teach for a while, you know, a lot of times, you know, there's patterns. I mean, that's one thing with experience. You work with, you know, okay, this is this kind of kid, and this is this kind of kid, and this is this kind of kid. And, you know, I think it's always good to have those reminders of, you know, yes, this person might embody certain, you know, characteristics that's of it, similar right. students in the past, but they're all unique individuals. And and that helps keep it really, keeps it really fun and fresh and exciting. So, question, if you were to go back, if you were to do this again from the start, or let me say this, when you do this again with students, what do you think, what would you do differently the next time? I would do a more linear um, study of your materials specifically you provide on your your website um, and have it ready for them. So when they're ready for that particular component, such as writing out directions, you know, of, in a technical form, um, uh, you know, design game mechanics, I would have it instead of, um, 
because you know it's relatively new for me i would have it more linear um as opposed to just kind of free for all um mm-hmm. well i mean the one thing is i mean for myself is i've taught kids where they've when they've worked on game ideas where we've had them do mechanics first and we talk about all the mechanics and then we get into game design i've had them approach it from theme first and then we get into game design and what i've managed to do over time is kind of shift back and forth and more like instead of like two big swings you know to basically kind of spiral basically and we're going to touch on mechanics we're going to touch on theme we're going to touch on conflict we're going to you know just kind of keep circling through those things so that there are some kids who are definitely more um, concerned with what players are actually going to do. Yeah. There are other kids who are much more concerned with, well, what is this game going to be from a story, narrative, thematic perspective? Um, and it's it's really tough to find. And this is not about what I do and what's best for me. This is definitely about what's best for you at this point, you know, in terms of what's the process that you're comfortable with doing, knowing yourself, knowing your own students and how what's best for you is definitely not going to be the same thing for me, which good and bad. (laughs) Yeah. um, I I don't know. I think that because I was, you know, I I tend to be like, Hey, let's just jump in and figure it out kind of stuff. And I Mm realized not all of my students are, some are more than happy to go along with that. And others just want to be able to, you know, make a pretty box. And, um, you know, one of the games I got, just this this uh, young woman is a delight to have in class and, mm-hmm. and uh, super fun. But she made a basically a one use game. Mm-hmm. Um, it had a trivia component component in it. Right. Um, where you moving around and uh, you know at, at first I was like, eh, are you sure you want to make it a one use? But she was like, man, I worked so hard on this and and uh, it, it actually worked. We played a complete game mm-hmm. unlike some other, t- you know. And so you're taking your wins for what you can. And so figuring out who's ready to go along, mm-hmm. who's who just wants something they could they could you know put on a shelf and right. take a picture of. Well, yeah. and there is actually the development in recent years about. Um, one use games. There's a game series called, um, Exit Games, and it's basically like an escape room in a box. And you, oh. you know, write on things and you tear up things are about, you know, 10 bucks each. And so you, you would probably love those, honestly. Um, and those are one-use games. You also have legacy games, which are gaining more and more in popular. I think any big game series is having legacy games. And those are, you know, multi-chapter you know chapter kind of games. But again, you write on materials, you tear things up, you write on the board. Um, and so the idea, you know, because it was always sort of like, well, of course you'd have to have replayability and everything. But then if you can create a really great one-time-use game, that's, that's not a bad thing. Like, people will buy pay for it so uh, i yeah. have no idea yeah so there's my well, no, no, don't computer. say don't uh, say don't say awesome. ignorance because i mean I, I, no ignorant, no well, i'm totally that, ignorant that's okay uh, well, that, well that's why we're here yeah <laughs> not a, yeah not a negative not a ne- negative necessarily it's just like i don't even know what i don't know right. about the world of gaming and stuff like right. that so I'm, I'm i love learning like well, that, okay yeah. well that makes sense well i mean i guess yeah. and the one thing too is you know from her perspective in some ways um i mean sometimes kids just just design one use games because they don't know how to make it, you know, replayable. But um, anytime you want some sort of like deduction game, you know, figure out the mystery kind of thing, you know, like Clue is obviously endlessly replayable. Um, But, you know, how do you have, you know, access to partial information that can be reshuffled, you know, rearranged, you know, differently. But 
the point is, is whenever students do something like that, and I'm always like, you know what's cool about this? Like, your game's not done. Or I don't, I don't always say that. Like, it's not like I'm saying your game is not done every other <laughs> moment. It sounds like it. Um, I said, but there's another game out there that's very similar to this. Or your game shares those, those characteristics. And isn't mm-hmm. it cool that you're thinking the same way about, mm-hmm. you know, your game mm-hmm. as other published games are, you know? So anytime I can bring in anything that basically is encouraging or celebratory, um, you know, all the better. So what do you think about your students in terms of the impact on them? Um, do you think any of your students, like, especially, I mean, not just about, you know, resilience necessarily, but as far as the process, because you have kids that aren't seniors, um, what do you think they will take from this experience? Let's see. Uh, well, I'm, like I said, I read some of these, some of the feedback and if it's, if they're not just, you know, saying what, what I want to hear, mm-hmm. um, it seems like they, they valued at least the process and that they had freedom and they were able to, to do it. Um, so what are they going to take back? I think there are some who would look, look around and say, you know, I'd, I'd like to try this again. Um, maybe we can play a couple more games. Mm-hmm. Um, I thought that was actually really fun cause I've never really done that, um, in, in my years of, uh, teaching gifted, mm-hmm. um, where I just have stations and we would kind of analyze the games, but we were also mm-hmm. playing them and trying to figure out what's going on. And so, um, you know, building up the vocabulary, I, I, I keep going back to like, uh, when I wanted to learn more about jazz because some of the, my favorite people were all talking about jazz and I was like, okay, maybe this is the thing I need to I'll learn. Um, you just got to go listen to right. it to start knowing what, what you're talking about. And it's exactly the same thing. You just got to right. play a bunch of games to have any right. kind of concept. And I feel like I'm just scratching the surface on some well, of this stuff. Okay. Well, that's okay. And, it's, uh, it's, yeah, it's a so happy world, and we're glad to have you part of it. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, and so uh, bringing more games in, um, expanding our vocabulary and finding out what we can do. And I, I think the idea that I had, which was attaching it to a larger curriculum goal, was actually pretty cool. And so what are we doing now? I've been tossing around the idea. Well, that what we're doing when we get back in January is we're going to be reading Outliers, which is a great book in general about um, nature versus nurture, talent yeah. versus hard work kind of stuff. And so, uh, you know, we, we all have the same book. Well, let's try to create some kind of uh, communal activity, whether it's a game or whether it's some kind of interesting quiz or, or a breakout or something. Uh, right. Live, li- you yeah. should look into live action role play. I will. Yeah, because that's where basically, you know, they're playing on roles. So instead of just tabletop role playing games, they could actually be those. And especially for something like that, you could come up with some really interesting simulations um, for them to find, to act out, to really explore these ideas from a very in-depth, first-person, um, active sort of way. Cool. Yeah. Yeah, very cool. Well, very good. Well, you know, I think uh, this has been really interesting and fun. I'm sad, like I said, that people missed out on parts one and two. Um, <laughs> yeah, we got some but, weird stuff, didn't we? Uh, there was pretty well and all that. <laughs> there was all kinds of stuff, which I was so bummed about, but that's okay. Um, but I think um, what I'm really happy about is, one, you've been willing to stick through this, but also um, especially talking about our own collective sort of failures and, you know, our own sorts of resilience as it relates to this, because, you know, as tough as this is for students, teaching game design has never been easy for me. You know, like every semester, I mean, I just graded 39 projects and I have, you know, another, what, let's say 40-ish coming in, you know, in a couple weeks, and we're going to start the process all over again. And, 
I think, especially when it comes to our own resilience, we're doing what we can to model this for our students. And I think as long as we're open and honest about ourselves in the process, that helps them to be open and honest. And, and quite honestly, you know, I know you said earlier about, you know, you know, promoting yourself too much, but honestly, I wish more teachers did things like this. I know it's hard. There's a lot of, um, restraints on, you know, content and other things that have to do, but, you know, to have our students have these open-ended types of problems, um, and giving them the opportunity to struggle through them, I think is great. So, um, yay us. (laughs) Uh (laughs) uh, And, um, and where can people find you if they want to find out more about, um, what you're doing and, and what you're working on? Yeah, uh, I'm semi-active on Twitter, so it's at Seth Yeager ED. Uh, and Yeager is with a J. That's right. The traditional J-A-E. hunter. Yeah, that's right. Um, I'm also at fivehabitsdaily.blogspot.com where I kind of throw in my critical thinking stuff. I have about 75 different um, activities uh, based around high interest stories, I think using questioning, um, that was a big thing I've been doing for the last few years is developing questioning techniques with students and how to make a, a good question. I actually, uh, produced an app, um, that is like a, a driving question generator. Um, and, that, and what's the name of that app? Because I know a lot of teachers would be really interested in that. It is called driving question generator <laughs> and, <laughs> and it's on uh, Google play. Uh, it's not, there's not an Apple one yet, but I put it, the uh, the prototype Excel version on my website okay. as well, which is fivehabitsdaily.blogspot.com. Cool. And uh, I don't know, I'm working on a couple of things right now, but, you know, really, really need to get to my dissertation um, a little more, focus right. on that a bit. But I'm working on kind of a, um, a small companion piece to the model that I described earlier. And, um, you know, it's a synthesis of a lot of different ideas, some really zeitgeisty, trendy, fatty kind of things that are out there right now. Um, with stoicism. Anyway, so that's that's kind of what I'm doing online and uh, IRL. <laughs> well, so. we'll look forward to the case study in your work as far as uh, yeah. teaching game design with students and all that. Well, thank you, Seth, again for uh, right. being on the show. We'll look forward to part four, and hopefully people will um, be able to actually listen to that one as well. Um, so hopefully you'll come back on the show, and thanks Great. so much for being part of this. Hey, thank you, Kathleen. Oh, you're welcome. This is Kathleen Mercury. You can find me on the interwebs. Uh, I am on Twitter at Mercury with seven M's. Of course, uh, the website that I've plugged a number of times, but hey, it's free. Uh, www.kathleenmercury.com. And you can message me there. I heard from somebody in Italy today and I talked with some teachers from California yesterday about incorporating um, game design into their high school um, history curriculum. So I always love collaborating with people. So don't be afraid to reach out. I think it's a ton of fun. And thanks so much. And we'll Uh, We'll see you next time. Thank you for listening to Games in Schools and Libraries. You can find out more about Inverse Genius and the people who create the Games in Schools and Libraries podcast by visiting us at inversegenius.com, where we have other great shows such as Onboard Games, On RPGs, On Minis Games, and The Room Escape Divas. If you would like to be on the show or have questions, comments, or ideas for episodes, please contact us at schoolsandlibraries at gmail.com and let us know. We do have our episodes booked out for several weeks in advance, so if you have something time-sensitive, you will want to contact us as early as possible. 